This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We do welcome you to Bite Into It. We talk computing, technology, uh, Telstra adages, the usual dramas. Oh, you know, just whatever's in a week. Whatever's in a week. Um, tonight uh, on the show, uh, I'm pleased to be sitting next to Cassie. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, how's your week been, technology-wise? You know what? Uh, it it hasn't been too bad. There's always mm. some exciting new developments at work that are, <laughs> why can't we just plug and play this? Why can't we just... We don't need a developer. <laughs> Let's just go do it. So there's been some some fun things abounding there. But, you know, it's always good to have... I did see that fail fast sticker on your bumper, on your car. <laughs> You're kind of really living the dream, aren't you? You know, you've just got to do what you've got to do. Mm, it's true. Um, I'll be with you also on Warren Davies. Um, we've got a great show tonight. Really excited to talk to some of the guests and uh, also a few other things that uh, are coming your way. Uh, Councillor Jackie Watts from the City of Melbourne is also a librarian, which does make her immediately interesting to bite into it and the family. Uh, tonight we'll be talking about a new service that the city has signed up to with the six libraries uh, across City of Melbourne, uh, Canopy, uh, which looks really fun. Um, also on the fun side of things, uh, if you love chip tunes and who doesn't, you'd be crazy. Uh, we'll also be talking to Chippocrit, uh, ahead of Square Sounds, which is coming up in Melbourne, uh, not too far away. But before then, uh, there is a fair bit going on. In uh, brouhaha news, um, if you've been following the news that got launched um, uh, very subtly before Christmas that um, Apple is taking over a piece of real estate in Fed Square, uh, a very contested piece of real estate, you'll be disappointed to hear that uh, the Greens have failed to win support for their bid to block uh, Apple's new Fed Square store. Um, it did actually uh, get through the lower house, but in the upper house, the Greens were determined to um, stop the Andrews government motion um, uh, to um, support the construction of the store. Um, yeah, so the contentious retail development uh, is going ahead. Um, I don't know. How does this strike you? Are we, are we getting upset about nothing or should we be digging our heels in? There's plenty of other places to put a store. I think if we wanted to stand up to consumerism and corporations, mm. we probably should have done that before. Cue the rage against now. the machine, <laughs> marbles on like, the street. Um, yeah. I, I do understand that, you know, we're, we're saying there's... Well, the thing about Fed Square is that it is a hub for mm. the whole community. Mm -hmm. But the if someone's going to be lining up and camping outside for the latest iPhone release, I'd rather they do it in somewhere relatively safe like Fed Square. Go to Chatty or something Rather like that. than on the street somewhere else. Like, um, And, you know, we already do have businesses that, that are part of... Fed Square. So mm. it's about saying, okay, at what level can you be? And um, the fact of the matter is, though, that Apple could open up a huge store anywhere mm. and have people come to it, have mm. people flock there. So for me, I'd prefer they put it in Docklands and actually mm. get some life in the area. That's a great idea. Because uh, I used to work there and it was really bleak mm. um, and no one would ever come through, even mm. when we had great sales. Mm -hmm. But Putting it smack bang in the middle of the city, for me, it's going to be more of a logistical problem. It's crowded enough as it is. Mm. Now, whenever there is a launch, um, it's going to be all about it. But that's what Apple want, mm. really. So They did. Uh, they and the government did say the new building would create more open space uh, in the public square and improve access between the square and the Yarra uh, waterfront. Um, but 
demolishing part of the square that's become sort of a, an unofficial civic meeting space um, has um, sparked a lot of backlash. Um, so interesting. I, I guess um, it's at a point now. It, it didn't have an easy birth, Fed Square, and it was a controversial design. A lot of people still don't feel it was it was well conceived and sort of put up. But um, it's now it's now working all these years later, and now we're kind of tweaking with the, the formula, well, I guess. As a millennial, mm. um, I was a teenager when... Say what you feel. Fed Square <laughs> came up. So for me, it's kind of always been there in my memories of the city as mm. someone who grew up in the suburbs. And it actually is a really great meeting space, festival space, um, just a place where people feel that it can kind of belong to them and not someone's private p- property, even though it, it yeah. is the city. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see what what dynamic will happen with this. Yeah, I do notice it is in uh, beautiful uh, iPhone X rose gold. So um, presumably they'll have to replace the store um, every year um, from now on um, to whatever's in fashion. You know, it might start running slowly. It might start uh, running If there's slowly. an update. They'll just brick the whole store. Speaking of iPhones, uh, there was a little bit of news today for any Telstra customers who are Apple fans uh, with an iMessage outage uh, this morning. And I thought it was just me. No, it was me too. And I actually just work really hard all day. So I didn't even really notice it um, if my boss is listening. But there were many um, iPhone users being unable to use iMessage or FaceTime for around two hours today. Um, And for those of you who don't know, iMessage is um, like you would send an SMS, but the iPhone detects when you're sending to another iPhone and it sends it via Apple's internet service rather than the networks. So it's it's data instead of a, a traditional SMS. But the um, the one of the biggest annoyances with the outage is that Apple has really, really pushed its iMessage service in the way that you can get stickers, you can interact with it. And a lot of the selling point off the iPhones are about iMessage or linked to that. So mm. not having it is super annoying. Um, they just, Telstra suggested that you should just send SMS messages, which... I just hate having those green things on my screen though. They see that's prejudiced like against Android and Windows phone users. <laughs> Um, people are like, don't sorry, date sorry, anyone yeah. who doesn't have a blue bubble. I'm like, excuse me. Really? That's really, yeah. Oh, okay. That's something millennials might Unusual say. Unusual prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's unclear whether it was limited geographically. So it's affected most people on the yeah. East Coast. But we all know Melbourne and Sydney make the most noise. <laughs> so, you know, everyone on Twitter has been complaining. I took an amazing photo of a hippopotamus coming out of the nature strip this morning. And I spent two hours trying to get that out to the person. <laughs> just didn't know what was going on. Yeah, but, you know, now it's just, it's been really stressful for a lot of people who have had to call I was really stressed. Of, yeah. yeah, but for the real fact of the matter is that as anyone who, as anyone knows who has perhaps changed their phone from mm. iPhone to Android or yeah. had an iPad, sometimes people can be sending you iMessages that don't get senders sent as SMSs and just going to get lost or stuck somewhere. And that happened to me once where I had a boss contact me and I mm. didn't contact them back and they got really irritated about that, but it was because I changed phones and it just got, kind of got lost. So there could be real world repercussions here while we're having a little laugh. But well, there, were, there were real world uh, repercussions. Uh, Mr. Nate 33 on Twitter said, this Telstra iMessage outage is an absolute disaster. I've already had to ring two people I didn't really want to talk to. So horrible. Yeah, it was a, a bad day all uh, round. And there's um, some uh, Mr. Kringers 
And Matt Dooley has said, update a Telstra ad shows people talking to holograms. Telstra IRL can't use iMessage, <laughs> which is pretty great. It's pretty true. Uh, some other uh, software that has been uh, letting us down um, is related to uh, cars. Um, newly leaked documents um, suggest Daimler, which is the parent company behind Mercedes-Benz, may have used software um, hacks to get around US emissions tests, um, uh, testing for diesel engines in particular. It's an interesting story because th- this has been going on um, with Volkswagen also and it's quite a significant um, case on um, their emissions cheating. But um, these new um, new documents that have come out, uh, I think on Sunday, um, found functions in the engine software called Bit15 um, allowed Mercedes diesel... Um, to pass US emissions tests. Um, one reportedly reduced or halted emissions scrubbing after 26 kilometres or 16 miles, which stopped the injection of diesel exhaust fluid um, that cleaned the exhaust gas. Um, so, yeah, effectively, they'd configured the software in some of these cars to um, uh, work around the emissions tests, in a way. Um, Daimler have refuted the um, assertions, um, saying, you know, we're the victims here um, and these things need to be considered, which is fair enough. I think um, it just needs to be looked into more closely. Um, there was also a um, one related to um, 18 wheelers, um, which allowed truck rebuild companies to install a rebuilt truck engine in a new body and be judged by older, looser emissions rules. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a weird one. Wherever you try and um, put in a well-meaning rule, um, someone will always try and use software or kind of um, the tech spec to work around it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's upsetting to see what corporations can do or to try and get around regulations or to Mm. to try and and often it can be just a culture of yes people Mm. you know or or just a small lie or not wanting to upset Mm. the boat that just gets bigger and bigger but um well bad culture i guess you know yeah they they should be motivated to to get the best result rather than to you know um, return profits or kind of not disrupt production or or what have you um you got some twitter news as well yes so Mm. um this one will just have a little bit of a content warning on. Uh, It does talk about self-harm or um, threats of suicide. So uh, just a reminder, if if this does bring up anything for you or um, you'd want some advice on getting help, you can contact Lifeline on 131114. Um, But just in regards to Twitter, Warren, it's updated its policy recently to... um, stop tweets that encourage self-harm and suicide. Now, for a long time, Twitter as a platform has been criticised for not really doing anything to stop things like trolling and doxing. Um, it's really easy for people to make a an account and have that egg picture, which means they haven't uploaded anything of themselves, and just use it to send hate and harassment to, to other people. Um, but now there is an announcement saying that users can report profiles, tweets, and direct message that encourage self-harm or suicide. Uh, Previously to this, you could only report a user who um, had posted something like that for themselves. So you could post against them as a way for them to get help. But now you can actually post against perpetrators of of violence. Right. so this is part of Twitter's two-pronged approach to support people who are undergoing experiences with self-harm or suicidal thoughts, but also banning the encouragement of self-harming behaviours. And um, the first time you uh, you offend, uh, you can be temporarily locked out of your account and then repeat offenders may have their account suspended. 
But this brings up a whole other set of discussions and um, there might be articles that listeners see over the next couple of weeks, um, especially from organisations like HeartMob, which has been put together by Hollaback, which is an initiative Mm. against street harassment. Mm -hmm. HeartMob's been around for a while and it's basically encouraging people in the community to band together and help people. So if you see someone being harassed or negative comments, you can band together to uplift that person or um, sort that out. People can request if they need help. Now, um, where Emily May, who's uh, one of the founders of Hollaback, um, she's written, she, she wrote an article a couple of years ago that you can find on the Knight Foundation website that's talking about how Social me- when social media companies get to define what is online harassment rather mm-hmm. than governments themselves, mm-hmm. the boundaries can really be drawn in a way that, again, protects profits and not necessarily protecting the users themselves. For example, when you look at Reddit's harassment policies, they've currently got um, the expectations of a reasonable person. Um, but when you ask what that is or if there's cultural differences, sure. that's not really taken into account. So it'll be interesting to see what Twitter makes of this and Mm -hmm. um, the way that they proceed. And again, if uh, this story has um, brought up anything or if you just want someone to talk to, uh, advice on getting help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you get down to the library on a regular basis, uh, you'll realise that um, storing heaps of stuff these days um, is becoming, well, both harder and easier at the same time. And one uh, group of people at the City of Melbourne are doing something about that. Um, they've uh, partnered with a new service to, um, I guess, provide um, a better service to um, their uh, constituents. And um, to talk about that, uh, we're now joined on the phone by Councillor Jackie Watts of City of Melbourne. Uh, Jackie, thanks for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure. Um are you are you a film buff? Do you like to um, dive into um, services like Canopy yourself? Do you, are you yes, but uh, I haven't yet. To be frank, I haven't actually accessed Canopy yet, but I, I do enjoy um, these days increasingly watching series of things on on, um, on the television, and uh, I think Canopy is going to be a boon to me and others in the city of Melbourne as well. It Once, seems uh, I, I, the, the 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 service that we're offering only came on board. Sort of, um, very recently, February. So um, we're all just getting on board with it, and really looking forward to what this might do for our city. It's kind of a, a nice idea as well. It's a, an Australian service that started in uh, in a spare room in Perth um, about, yeah. a, about a decade ago. What what attracted City of Melbourne to, to Canopy? Do you think? Well, the, the idea that it, it, it's a very interesting and uh, quality service. It's a very easy platform to use, as far as we can tell. We're watching the way in which our community takes up this particular service. We're expanding what we do in the libraries for our community in this in this uh, space. Mm. So what's important about it is it's easy and that the content is quality. I note that it, uh, it offers our community quite a lot of educational films and it began its life in li- um, academic library spaces. So... It's going to offer our community that which might be hard to access elsewhere. Yeah, it started with um, one of the first large user bases was universities, is that right? That's correct, as far as we we can tell, yes. Mm. So how this uh, will pan out for community libraries is something we're all all going to be watching. But um, I think the City of Melbourne is always interested in in innovative services for our community and services that uh, offer a 
uh, an equality of service. In, um, I mean, libraries are, well, no matter what they're offering, libraries are the most important piece of empowering infrastructure any city can offer. So this fits right in with a number of our main goals, which is empowering the community and improving... I mean, we just won an award last year for the world's most intelligent community. So there you go. This is, this is another aspect to that. That's amazing. Moving forward. And yes. um, we've seen recently that libraries have transformed along with the rest of society. I think um, gone are the days where we just associate them with books, you know, especially in the city of Melbourne, we've had many exciting things happening in libraries, whether it's maker spaces or um, places to edit, places to uh, and enjoy games and film. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about what we can expect to see out of the new innovative library space? Well, you've covered quite a lot of the, the innovations that we've been um, uh, promoting in our city. We've got six libraries in this city. And, and, and one, one side of things, you might say we were a young city. We, we have so many students, uh, international and domestic. But on the other thing, we, we actually have an ageing population as well who really get a lot out of our city, uh, our, our libraries. As I said, there's six spread around the municipality. Some are well-established and some are quite new. Like site for a well-established library would be the East Melbourne Library, for example. And now I know the history buffs are attracted to that. We host their historical society and other such um, established in communities of interest. But then we've got the Docklands Library, which is brand spanking new and award-winning architecturally in a fabulous location on the waterfront at Docklands. And in that, we have a tremendous number of, let's say, cutting-edge uh, services uh, 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 to offer our community. And then we've got Kathleen Sun, of course, in uh, adjacent to Melbourne University, you might say. But the, the, the key thing about the library services we offer is that we offer to upskill. That's, that's a sort of rather a, a clumsy phrase. For what we offer our community one-on-one -on -one instruction, if you like, about coming along. Um, in, in, in this digital age with us on, on, uh, and, uh, and improving the use of uh, various services and various pieces of equipment that are out, out of the comfort zone of many people. And I think another young or old. Yeah, another beautiful thing with services like Canopy or, you know, the the ebook services and the audiobook services is it's removing some of the barriers that some people might have in actually going to the library uh, in person to access it um, and actually have some of those titles come straight into their homes or into their spaces. It's, it's true. It's true. They are, I mean, when we're talking about accessibility, and I'm very much I'm, I'm not only chair of knowledge city but i'm deputy chair of people city in our uh, in in the city of melbourne so i'm very interested in how accessible our services are and obviously remote accessibility is very important too but that's not to say that i my personal preference is for people to come together and be amongst other people real time but this is just uh, this 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 uh, remote service is of course important too how does that work? You don't actually... I mean, we'd all like to pop down to the library and like watch a film with somebody else, but you can access it at home or on the train? You or, can, yeah. yes. There are certain sort of preconditions or, or certain uh, uh, equipment that you need, but um, and, and you're not speaking to a tech head here, but I don't know. And through the um, 
the Apple system and there are a number of other ways. But the, the way you find out how to do it is to, act, to go online and look at the City of Melbourne website, which will detail what you can do with what. Hmm. Well, and the, the idea is that it is accessible. So you're not going to find you very many situations there where it's a trip-you-up situation. We are in the business of making things easy for people. Well, with a City of uh, Melbourne library card, you can access the Canopy app on iOS and Android, as well as Apple TV Roku, which does make the Telstra TV, and Chromecast. So um, there are quite a lot of options to actually take that streaming with you, really comparable to other streaming services like Netflix and Stan. The key difference Mm -hmm. being that this is something that is accessible, doesn't have that monthly fee that that the others do, and, and really can be there for everyone to expand their knowledge and to enjoy some really wonderful uh, works of film, both documentary and fiction. And my understanding is the collection offered is is, is providing some quite rare material, multi-language multi, um, multi and uh, things that might be difficult to access in other sources. So yeah. we're very hopeful, we're very optimistic that this is just going to be one of our, one piece of our repertoire of terrific services for the, the, the community of Melbourne. From from like a librarian, like a curatorial point of view, um, I definitely think a lot of the new services are missing like this massive span of interesting content from like early film and TV, um, just because it's the long tail of stuff that people will watch. You know, you might only yeah. have might only have 50 people in um, Melbourne watching Three Colours Blue in a year. So you just don't get that stocked on Netflix or, or iTunes. And yeah, everyone, else, myself. Mm. everyone else has to go back to kind of the old DVD store, which, you know, there's they're few and far between these days. Is Do you mm. think, do you think mm. this service is trying to kind of fill that hole as well? Kind of all those hard to, well, hard um, to find stuff? Um, it, I know that's what it's intending to do, and we're doing quite a lot of monitoring as things go, so we'll be able to understand what it is our community is actually getting out of this service as it goes along. So your questions are intriguing to me, and our librarians, we're going to be seeing Mm. what people are wanting. Also, as a a librarian, it must be a large part of the job to look at the the content needs of the community, and you must have so many different systems going on. How how do you make a kind of an informed decision about we should go with that service or or the other service, and how how does does one generally balance the the competing platforms as an administrator of a library? Well, I'd have to be having a conversation now with our professional librarians. I started my life as a professional librarian, Mm. but this was before the internet age. So before a lot of the services that we that, that, that are now uh, provided. Sure. So we, 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 I was just at a VALA. Have you heard of VALA? It's a, a, a national librarianship association. And the whole business of librarianship has changed out of sight. Mm. So this kind of informed assessment of what's out there and informed assessment of what's best to offer the community it's very much the business of, of um, the professional association. So that which we can't or haven't come to a view ourselves, we know where to go for this kind of informed uh, assessment of, the, of services and content that, that uh, would be beneficial to our community. If you're in the city of Melbourne and you do use the libraries or you are a, a member, uh, when can you get access to the service or what should people do? You visit the city of Melbourne website. Sign up for library membership 
and check the library mem- uh, website for instructions about how to sign up for Canopy. As I said, we're in the business of making this easy for people. So I don't anticipate people are going to be tripped up mm. by that initial registration and accessing this material with ease. Sounds great. Uh, Jackie, we'll check it out as well. And um, thank you very much for making time tonight. Uh, it let, sounds let like me a... know. Let me know how you go. I'm, I'm keen to know. This is what we, our, our aspiration is all that I've described. But we'll see, won't we, when people start actually using it. We'll follow up. And if there's any hard-to-find titles, I'm coming to you. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> I look forward to that. Thanks so much. Good night. Bye. Square Sounds, um, it kind of feels like it's the big festival that gets um, Melbourne going every year. I know we have things like Paws and so forth, but I always kind of know I'm in Melbourne when Square Sounds is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a festival dedicated to chip tunes, um, which are kind of, uh, I guess, um, versions versions of songs and original music based on um, consoles and handheld um, uh, game type stuff. Um, and we're now joined in the studio by Chipocrit himself. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. How's it going? Uh, it's great. Yeah? Very awesome, yeah. Um, so you're in town for, for Square Sounds, which we might mm-hmm. talk uh, through in a, in a bit, but um, you make chip tunes. How, how do you describe, if you meet someone at a party or something, what chip tunes are? Sure, yeah, I do have like a go-to elevator pitch or whatever mm. you want to call it. Um, mm. Music created with or inspired by the onboard sound capabilities of old video game systems or mm. computers. Or, you know, and the built-in sound, the chips that are in them, that's where the chip comes from. Yeah. So these old things that were, you know, essentially built to be toys, um, but incidentally made music, but like we all really like the music and we like the capabilities of what the music they can generate is. Mm. So instead of just kind of playing Tetris on this mm. thing, um, we are repurposing them and using them as our own instrument to play our own songs. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that when developers were originally making these games, um, the the chips themselves or the capabilities were limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were taking these compositions and having to turn them eight bit and having to really mm-hmm. reduce them and. Um, you know, make what some would call a lesser version, but yet mm-hmm. now it's being used to make so much more and um, and draw from that. How's your experience been with, you know, some of the stuff that, that you're doing, which actually... Sure. Um, a lot of the people involved with this, like, will say straight up that the limitations are, like, kind of the best part. Um, it's It makes your brain work in a different way than having an unlimited number of tracks, you know, in a Pro Tools session or Ableton or something. Um, when you can only, when you have to, you know, really pare it down and you can only be generating not only a certain number of sounds, but like a certain shape of a sound. Um, but, you know, like you're really excited about it and you know the sort of limitations of it. Um, it's really exciting and it it um, it just makes your brain work in a different way. Sometimes I've described it as like song solving. <laughs> you're, you're sort of like, you have this idea in your head and traditionally a lot of us come from these backgrounds where we're playing with bands or we're playing, again, like those giant Pro Tool sessions, like I was just saying. But when you have that idea in your head and you have this limitation, you want to work it in there and you can work it in there. I mean, I've heard Game Boy music that just blows my mind. I'm like, that's the Game Boy sound chip can only really play four sounds at once. And like, sometimes you hear something, you're like, no way, no way. But like, you look at it and you know, that's what he's doing. So there's a way, there's just like all this way to fit your song and solve how, well, how can I sacrifice that? Like, you know, kick drum sound that's supposed to be hitting at the same time as that you know, a bass sound. Well, I can sort of make it sound like they're hitting at the same time. 
and you can fit it all in and like well, how can I fill that little space there with that other idea that you know some quote unquote guitar sound that was in my head or something so like pushing the limitations <clears throat> um, is is kind of the best part but we also sort of have uh, an advantage over the original game uh, developers which is that they were making a game you know so they had to they worry about all these other things um, in terms of processing and like the like full picture of this project. So like sometimes the music in a really good game is terrible because they have more resources made for the game or whatever. Um, but uh, or, or sometimes it's terrible because the game itself uses up so much of the processor that it's hard to focus on or hard to you know allocate some space to the music. But we are kind of cheating in a way in that we are just doing music so like we can really push the limitations of these things beyond <clears throat> what these original guys could do because like we don't need to worry about the high score and the graphics processor and stuff you know all that stuff it's interesting how um, chip tunes are now kind of washing up into kind of influ influencing other parts of culture as well we mm -hmm. I was doing a show on Triple R late last year, um, Tabula Rasa, and I was watching some horror films at the time and mm -hmm. Disaster Piece did mm -hmm. the theme for It Follows, it which, follows is a, yeah. which is a great film. Yeah. And um, I got into his stuff in a way. Do you, do you see it popping up in, anywhere in sort of strange and unusual ways rather than just kind of it's a place for people who like technology and gaming to um, be interested? Uh, yeah, I don't know what it's like over here. In, in America, you see it in commercials sort of often um, even if it's like a really short little thing like there's like a an insurance company and they have this like five second jingle but it's definitely like a square wave definitely kind of sounds like a Nintendo or something and um, they, it's always in every single one of their commercials and it's just like a weird creative choice to just have this sort of chippy sound in the middle of their um, otherwise not chip related advertising thing probably just trying to push a button like maybe maybe people yeah, have grown yeah. up with it and they're like oh yeah, you know. and that makes sense for sure. Uh, kind of, yeah, no brings you back to a place. Yeah. yeah, talking about literally pushing <laughs> buttons. Yeah. How <laughs> important is the visual or performance aspect to um, to chip tune live performances? Um, sure. Chad, is it normally something that has been pre-recorded, or do you get people actually physically using the do different people, consoles? Do yeah, people do Air Game Boy. Like, is that a thing? <laughs> um, it really depends on the performer. I've seen everything. I've seen everything, and you know, like, who am I to say what's best? You know, that's not my job here. But um, I've seen everything from like guys who kind of just like push start, and the song kind of just plays through, and they you know dance around and like headbang and stuff, and that gets the crowd going, and that's awesome. To you know, bands that play along with the Game Boy backing track. I, I'm in another band. Aside from this project, I play in a band called Cheap Dinosaurs. And I just play bass in that, but we play along with Game Boy tracks or other trackers that our sort of band leader gets together. Um, I play guitar along with a lot of my stuff. Uh, most of the songs that I play like live, 80% or something, I'll have a guitar along with it. But even the songs when I'm not playing guitar with them, I personally, I just don't, I have like, a, I come from like sort of an improv background, jazz jam band. I don't know how big that is of a thing over here. Um, I can't really stand being on stage doing nothing. I don't, I feel like it kind of cheats the audience. But again, I don't, if somebody else does it, I don't care. I'm not judging. I really am not. Hmm. But um, personally, I, I don't like being up there and sort of just giving the same song experience every time. So uh, fortunately, with the software, depending on what you're using or whatever, um, it is possible to sort of dig in there and like kind of do some live tweaking aside from, you know, maybe the same way a DJ would do like a filter sweep or something. Hmm. You can sort of mess with your instrument patches. I'll do a lot of that stuff. Um, you can like mute and solo a lot of instruments. I just like to do a lot of stuff like that because yeah, I don't, 
I I don't know. Maybe it's a self-conscious thing. Like I don't like being up there and just kind of pumping my fist. I, I want to do a little bit more and give the audience a little bit more. Is this your first trip to Melbourne? It is my first yeah. trip to Australia. Definitely. Right. Yeah. No, the Melbourne audiences will appreciate um, tweaking and you oh, good. enjoying yourself. Great. Trying different stuff. That's good. Yeah. That's warmly received. So, awesome. yes, if you haven't caught on from your accent, you mm-hmm. are actually from the US. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the differences that you've seen in, in different chiptune scenes or mm. is it more a global thing? Wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely global. Um, but there are, so I'm, I guess I, my, most of my experiences with the U.S. scenes, there's, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was funny the other day, somebody, I was talking to some Australian person, he was like, I said, I'm from Philly. And he was like, is that Massachusetts? And like, I'm not like judging that guy. I know that there's, cause like I couldn't name the states here or whatever, but it was just like, it was very charming. Like that's never happened to me before where someone just had no idea where Philly was. It was awesome. But, um, <laughs> I, I just know that it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's true. Tom Hanks goes there a bit. And yeah, there you go. Denzel Washington. That's right. Yeah. There's cream cheese. Yeah, we do have actually that Liberty think, Bell. The, yeah, uh, the cream cheese I think is like not made in Philly. There's some weird thing where it's like it seems like it's supposed to be Philadelphian, but it's not. Anyway, um, the Philly scene is awesome. It's amazing. Um, I would be nowhere without it. Like I heard about this type of thing many years ago. I've been doing this for like eight or nine years, and I was really excited about it and. I knew people were making music using old video game systems. It was kind of a sound that I always wanted, but I never knew how to do it. I don't. I didn't know the science behind like, what? Why does a Nintendo sound the way it sounds? So I I heard these artists like some guys from New York. I had a friend living in New York. She was like, "You got to check this out," and I listened to it. And I thought it was awesome. But again, like no clue how to do it. Tried to do a little bit of research. Just like had no time to figure this out. I was playing in other bands, so like all my musical resources were sort of being used up. Fortunately, in Philly, we started a month or some people started a monthly show. And before every like performance, they would give these workshops. And it was like, okay, people making music with video games and like explaining it. And I was like, I'm there. I'm going to that thing. And I cleared my schedule and I went. And like that night, I went home and downloaded the software and started doing it myself. So definitely, the scene in Philly is very like inclusive like that. And it's awesome. People, I think, tend to say that the Philly music is a little bit more proggy, I guess, a little bit more like weird time signatures and um, less, I guess, dancey. I don't know. Again, I don't want to be like too judgy or defining mm. or whatever. It's Melbourne. Mm-hmm. We're judging. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm actually more worried about the people back home listening <laughs> to this and being like, what? What did you say about New York? <laughs> <laughs> you can't um, dance to this? What? Yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Um, the New York scene tends to be just a little, I guess, dancier, like house techno electronic type stuff um there's a really good scene in rochester new york which is like upstate new york really just a bunch of guys there for whatever reason that are awesome Mm. there's a really good sort of midwestern scene that is also sort of dancey um there's people in san francisco doing all kinds of actually there's a really cool thing on the west coast called like chip thrash it seems to have originated out there where they set it to as fast of a tempo as they can and just like... You Sounds know. like a California thing. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Like a real punk, real thing, kind of like that. Um, I don't know. My, I, I haven't been to Square Sounds yet, so I don't really have a full picture of what it's going to be like, but I've been hanging out with the people with... Um, I've actually been in Sydney for the past four or five days and I was hanging out with um, Chris, who is his artist's name is God in Pants. He's playing Saturday Night. And he was playing a lot of the stuff for me. And it seems, you know... Um, pretty diverse you know there's there is sort of everything i've already brought up sort of dancey but sort of proggy uh nice mix so 
Yeah, it's interesting to see the little scenes and the things that everybody brings to the table across the world. And and thanks to the internet, we can like hear everybody's stuff like right away, which is awesome. And speaking of the development that you had, there are actually some events at Square Sounds that people can get along to. Mm-hmm. There's Nano Loop for beginners. Um, there's using Rezo Loom for visuals, so for doing VJ kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, and there's advanced LSDJ t- tips and tricks with Aquelix. So um, you can find more information about that on melbourne.squaresoundsfestival.com. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a really great opportunity not only to see different performers, mm-hmm. but to get inspired and kind of st- keep building that scene here, like you said, that was so nourishing back home. I mean, absolutely. Like if it wasn't for something like that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't be like traveling to Australia, which is amazing, you know? And um, yeah, I had music in like a nationally televised commercial back home, which was awesome. And just like, it was a chip song. It was a Game Boy thing. And like (laughs) before that I was like, you know, playing in like small clubs and just like, so little opportunities like that. So yeah, you know, you go to a thing like this and somebody's giving a demo of something and it, and it could just inspire you. It's like, I, why not? If you're interested in this stuff at all, just go and like, you know, you never know what you might take away. It's, it's a really good idea. Um, if anybody is wondering, Nanoloop is one of the main, the two main like pieces of software that run mm-hmm. on the Game Boy that people can use for this. Um, and LSDJ is like the other main one. Mm. So that's what those two workshops. And VJ stuff I don't know about, but I do know that visualists are like, you know, equally important to this whole thing for sure um i have never been to a chip show where there wasn't an incredible vj like it's just it's it's a really important part of it and it just adds to the whole thing and a lot of them use old hardware too um old nintendo stuff you know you know stuff inspired by it and uh that it really just adds to the whole thing you really don't know what it's like until you're there because it's easy for me to say like i make music with the game boy and Mm. you you think you know what that means but then when you hear it coming out of like giant speakers you're like whoa that's okay. different. Can, can you tell us a bit more about your setup? So there are sure. different, we've, we've spoken to a few different artists over the years and they have their mm-hmm. own kind of particular thing. What, mm-hmm. what, what do you like to work with? And maybe um, what's the background to it? Did you like grow up playing Game Boy and that was your yeah. thing? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like I said before, I had this idea in my head when I was um, in college, I guess, mm. that I wanted, I was playing guitar and bass at mm. the time and I was like, I want my bass to sound like a Nintendo, but like I had no idea what that meant. I mm. just had this idea in my head. I looked into it a little bit and I saw that people were, um, that, well, there's like some pedals, you know, mm. and you can get a pedal that kind of uh, distorts your guitar so it becomes like a square wave, you know, and, or, um, you know, synthesizer pedals that bring the octave down or whatever. And like, it's in the same vein as what these chips are capable of, but it was, unless you're doing like MIDI, like straight up, like, connected to a Nintendo that's really like running through it, it never sounds 100% the same. It can sound really cool, but it's not, it wasn't the sound that I really wanted. Uh, So I was just like, what am I going to do about this? I don't know. And then I discovered that people were actually using hardware to make their own music on this console. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. That's fine. (laughs) So um, the Game Boy just kind of ended up being the easiest one to get into because of that workshop that I went to, but also because it's portable and easy to find like uh you know i went into work one day and i was just like i'm doing this weird thing where i'm making music with game boy and one of my co-workers came in the next day with like five old game boys it felt like christmas it was like one of the best things that ever happened so like things like that'll happen where people just kind of give you it's easy to find them at you know yard sales or whatever mm. um and how much work's involved in kind of getting ready like from kind of going oh here's a game boy or um, um 
other kind of device? Uh, I mean, per song, I guess, depending on the complexity of the song, mm. I, it takes me, I guess, somewhere between eight and 12 hours to do a whole song. Mm. The LSDJ will actually show you how long you've been working on a project, which is both <laughs> good and kind of scary sometimes yeah. yeah well they say that 8-bit music actually encourages you to keep working yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i can imagine if you're actually making music you can just get stuck oh on that. yeah you get in the zone and you're just like what time is it whoops uh, i've been on this level for so long <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah gotta nail it yeah yeah um uh so my setup is basically just like one like i have two game boys on stage but they're not really playing at the same time i just have them there so I can sort of usually transition between songs. I mm-hmm. like to sort of um, end a song and like, you know, I know what chord it ends on or whatever and I figure mm-hmm. out another song that will sort of beautifully transition into that or like beat matching a little bit for those transitions. Generally, it's just one Game Boy at a time playing the song. And then I play guitar on top of it, which I, I just run it through my laptop um, using software called Guitar Rig. And I just have like a little foot controller that turns effects on and off, just pretending to be a quote unquote real guitar player running through an amp, you know distortion and things like that but um yeah that's basically it i have oh uh, on some of my recordings like on the song we just heard i play with a drummer occasionally couldn't bring him to australia with me unfortunately mm-hmm. but um playing with other other musicians is always fun uh sometimes i'll add other little synths and stuff i've performed live with that a little bit but like I, half the reason i wanted to get into this was like paring down <laughs> you know like i used to have to bring a gigantic bass rig bass amp with me and mm. bring it upstairs and you got always somebody to help you with it and stuff and it's like the most annoying thing when i did my first ship dude set and i had just like a bag with like two game boys and a mixer in it and i had to like park really far away from the venue and i was just like this is i don't care this i don't even best. care that i have to park far away because i get to walk with all my stuff and just go in and play it's a revelation um, I did notice that you do actually have a, a chiptune crash course up as well um, yes. for people who are interested in learning more about this. Where yeah. can they find that? Uh, so the web, the company that I worked with is called Soundfly. So it's soundfly.com. It's free. It's actually this like two, it was technically three parts, but the third part, I'll get back to that in a second. Mm. It's an online course that you can do at your own pace. And it's um, really meant to be like, you know, you've never heard of this or you've seen it and you have no idea how it's being done. Starting from there, and like all the way up to kind of getting your hands on LSDJ and maybe making your first little loop thing. And we have mm-hmm. a demo mm-hmm. that is actually from, you know, it's the Super Mario Brothers like Underworld song. Mm-hmm. You can make like a little funky loop of that for a second. Um, the first part is just the basics in the background. And the second part is doing that little loop. And then the third part was actually a little contest that we had, which encouraged people to do a cover uh, the song that they chose for some reason was Whip It by Devo. Oh, and we choice. had a whole bunch. Yeah, it was great. We had a whole bunch of people submit these covers. We're not doing that anymore, but you can still check it out. And actually, just in the on the subject of covers for people getting started, I think it's actually a really good way to learn an instrument or a piece of software or something because like, you don't get hung up on writing. Songwriting is a completely different thing than any of the technical stuff we've been talking about. Mm. So if you can sort of separate... Um, the the parts the decisions of like well how do I write this how do I what should this be the verse what should what chord should you go here if you can separate that stuff out and just focus on the tool you'll get better that much better at it that much quickly so that's why we did a cover thing and that's what I do recommend if somebody's interested nice uh, Square Sounds is on in Melbourne uh, this Friday and Saturday uh, at twenty four moons and there's a few other side events going on um, here and there um, I hope you have heaps of fun welcome Thanks. to Melbourne yeah thank you one of the things that is always interesting is um, talking about AI and what is it and how does it work and uh, are we all in trouble? Um, you'll be pleased to know that um, there are moths out there um, that are a little bit smarter than AI. Um, this came up 
in uh, technology review, which is always pretty interesting. Um, it comes down to how um, machines learn. And one of the things about insects, um, and in particular moths, is that they can actually learn um, to um, detect and understand a smell within uh, a few sniffs, I guess it were. I'm not sure how whether they have nostrils. It's, I'm a little bit obscure on You don't know your, your moth facts. Moth olfactory systems? Don't know it. Um, but what we do know is that um, they're a little bit smarter. Uh, machines need so many different reference, uh, data points um, to understand some simple things such as um, smells or colours or, or what have you. Um, so there's an interesting piece which we'll um, uh, put up um, maybe on the Twitters, uh, which shows um, how um, machine learning um, comes to terms with things such as smells. Um, it's an interesting little uh, system diagram, but um, the moths have got it sorted, so that's an interesting one. Um, in other news... Um, yes, well, in, in other news, there is continuing a debate from AUDA over the new .au domain names that are set to launch this year. What is happening? This Surely this should have been sorted out. Okay. So, you know how we've got .com.au and .edu.au, mm. .org.au, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, there's now going to be a new uh, top-level domain as .au, which came out from a survey done, uh, I think it was in 2015. So, um it's, it's been there for a little while, but a lot of people online are questioning the legitimate need for mm. this. Mm -hmm. Now, something else that has arisen is information that uh, you will only be first in line to get the .au if you own the .com.au uh, address and you had it registered before April 2016, mm. which for anyone who's just <laughs> launched their business is oh, a bit no. of a blow, but as well as for people who have perhaps the .net.au or the .edu.au and, um, you know, aren't, aren't eligible for this. So a lot of small businesses are mostly the ones that are, that are currently... Uh, discussing this, yeah, and, and in the jam because the big corporations don't really care. But, they, got, uh, <laughs> they can pay to get around it. Yeah. Mm. So it'll be interesting just to see what happens. Mm. Thanks to our guests, Jackie Watts and to Chippocrit for stopping in tonight and having a chat with us on the phone. Um, thanks to you for listening tonight and um, sending us your thoughts. Uh, we've been bite into it. We will be back next week with some different humans and coming up next is Anthony Carew with International Pop Underground. Stick around. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.